Hello listeners, this is your host Annabelle Higgins and welcome to A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today I've got Emily Carding here to enlighten you all on three very intriguing character choices. Emily is a professional actor, writer and artist living by the sea in beautiful East Sussex. They hold a BA in Theatre Arts from Bretton Hall and an MFA in Staging Shakespeare from the University of Exeter. They have now appeared in versions of 24 of Shakespeare's plays on stage and screen and won multiple awards for their innovative approach to Shakespearean performance, including Bright Theatre's immersive solo adaptations of Richard III and Hamlet and their own Quintessence, a sci-fi solo show which imagines a future in which an AI recreates humanity using the complete works of Shakespeare as a guide. They are also the author of So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare for Llewellyn Publishing, and the creator of several innovative tarot decks, as well as other books and essays on various mythical and mystical subjects. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily. It's a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to see you. So first question, how did you get into Shakespeare? This is kind of a recurring theme on this podcast. So it's really cool to talk about how it all started, you know? Yeah, well, I had a state school education. Um, we didn't have drama class, but as everybody does, we had English class. And I was very lucky in that um, I had one wonderful, very enthusiastic English teacher called Gay Pennell. She was she was lovely. And I remember we did um, Twelfth Night was one of the plays that we did at, at school, just reading it in the class. And I don't think I'd really, I, I don't have a theatrical family or particularly artistic family, but there was something about the enthusiasm that, that she had when she would read the parts. And then I would read these words and these beautiful words, and it kind of made sense to me straight away. Um, I didn't have the thing that everybody else in the class had of like, oh, I don't get it, I don't understand it. It just resonated with me. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I hadn't been immersed in it from from being small or anything like that but as soon as I encountered it I was like this is for me this is mine I get it and I genuinely didn't understand why it seemed like to some of these other teenagers like a, a, another language and I grew up in a town called Newcastle under Lyme in Stoke-on-Trent uh, our local theatre was the New Vic which is beautiful theatre in the round and I think it was my 15th birthday not very good with time but I think it was around my 15th birthday and I asked to be taken to see a production of Macbeth at the New Vic. And it was no frills. They just did the play. I don't think there's anybody, you know, no names in it. And that wasn't so much the trend then anyway. It was a local production, I think. And I just absolutely fell completely in love with it. I was obsessed. Um, I remember pestering English teachers for after school drama clubs or anything. But we had nothing like that. But I just I held this love. I just wanted to feel those words in in my face and in my body, you know. Um, and it wasn't until I went on to um, A level college that I was able to do any any drama at all. But it was absolutely those first encounters with Shakespeare at school and also the school trips. We were lucky enough to have school trips. Um, so after that sort of first encounter, we did get taken to see at the RSC, Henry IV, part one, um, with the, the just, just, it was just wonderful. It was Michael Maloney as Hal and Robert Stevens as Falstaff, and it was just legendary. 
It's like Robert Stevens is one of these iconic legendary actors. Michael Maloney was young and full of energy, bouncing around the stage and throwing himself around. And I was like, that. <laughs> so yeah, that was it. That was me done. That was that was what I wanted to do. It's great to find that sort of passion when you're young. I mean, it was a similar experience for me, except I encountered Shakespeare through reading. But I knew I had a similar thing to you. I understood it. I didn't need it translated for me. I just kind of got it when I was that little to just look at the texts and feel at home with them. And not going to lie, it was <laughs> kind of satisfying to see that I got something that some of my peers didn't. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I mean, it sort of set me apart as a, a bit of a nerd and a weirdo, but so many other things did that anyway. That <laughs> um, and now I sort of, now I feel like I make it my mission, or one of my missions, part of my mission, to make Shakespeare as accessible as possible so that more people can hear those words and go, oh, oh, I get it. I love that. that that's for me. Hear, hear. Absolutely. This is exactly what needs to be done with Shakespeare. There's too much gatekeeping. We can push all of that to one side, toss it in the bin and start afresh and introduce people of all ages, people who are brand new to theatre, people who are brand new to literature, to these powerful resonant words. Mm. Yeah, people of all ages and people of all walks of life and all classes. Indeed. I don't know whether you've come across uh, Shakespeare North Playhouse much yet. No, I haven't. Oh my gosh, Annabelle. So, a new theatre, it won Theatre Building of the Year last year, um, Shakespeare North. It's up in a very rundown, very working class town called Prescott near Liverpool. They've built an early modern style theatre and it has a studio theatre as well. And they're putting on Oh, 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 they're trying to make Shakespeare really accessible, not only with the productions that they're putting on. And Ben, ben Crystal is a, an associate artist there. So he's he's doing stuff there. Um, and their ticket prices uh, on basically are on a scale, so you can choose what fits your budget. So ticket prices are everything from like £3 to £30, I think. So really anybody, except for people who really have nothing at all, but anybody who wants to try going to the theatre, who might never have been to the theatre, let alone Shakespeare before, can afford to, to go and see something. And people have been like buying tickets to see whatever and then going, oh, cool, I want more of this. Let's just buy tickets for whatever there is and just like, you know, give me more. It's um, it's wonderful, something that more theatres should be doing. It definitely is. Oh, that would be great. I wish there was something like that where I live. No, check check it out. Have a have a little Google. This is get everybody listening as well. If you haven't come across uh, Shakespeare North, have a look at the wonderful work that they're doing. I'm not just saying that because I'm taking two shows there this year, um, because I've, I've been wanting to get in there since it opened, since I saw the news that it was opening. But uh, I'm very excited about the work that they're doing. And rightly so. It sounds fascinating. But to get started with the main theme of the podcast. Let's talk about your three character choices. To begin with, your all-time favourite Shakespeare character and why. Yeah, so this was a really difficult question for me because I love so many of them so much and I love all of the characters that I've played um, so, so much. 
Um, but for my for my favourite Shakespeare character, and I, I have personal reasons attached to all of my choices, I've gone with Paulina from The Winter's Tale, because I just think she's the best person. She is. Oh, Paulina, Mwah. we love her. I just I just adore her. I mean, she's wonderful. She she takes no rubbish from anybody. She'll stand up to mm -hmm. authority. Um, she stands for the truth. She stands for loyalty. Um, she stands for integrity. She stands for like the sovereignty of the land. She holds up all of those principles. And still, once Leontes um, repents his actions, she stands by him and guides him. And I just, I just think she's extraordinary. Um, my sort of per personal attachment to the Winter's Tale and to Paulina um, in particular was that I was lucky enough, God, incredibly lucky, when I did my MFA, um, which was a two-year course, and, and each of those years we had a two-week residency at Shakespeare's Globe. And so we got to put on short versions of plays on the stage for a small invited audience. And the first year, which was um, early 2012, when I'd first started the course, we'd done the autumn term and it was the beginning of that winter term. Um, it was the winter's tale that we were working on and I got cast as Leontes in the trial scene. So everybody got a decent chunk of stuff, but I got the trial scene, which was extraordinary. And I just fell in love with this play in a way that I, I, I had never seen it really done well, but to experience it from the inside out and on the globe stage and that whole journey that Leontes goes through and the trial scene into absolutely crumbling and to feel Paulina's speech like come at you after Hermione's death, you know, um, and all that tyrant. Oh my gosh, it was so incredibly powerful. So I, I experienced that section as as Leontes and the power of Paulina coming at me. Then I was even more privileged, I'd say, perhaps as part of my specific area of, of study from the beginning, which eventually a lot of it went into the book So Potent Art that was released a couple of years ago. My, my particular area of study was the, the practical application of the esoteric content in Shakespeare. And I'd been looking for other people who were studying or working with this sort of thing. And I came across online this most obscure web page and like a link within the web page, like a chap called Peter Dawkins, um, who worked with geomancy, which is like working with the Earth's energies um, and all of this sort of spiritual stuff and um, and worked with the mysteries of Shakespeare and led courses on the mystery of Shakespeare and also um, pilgrimages with Mark Rylance. And that's a very small link that said something like an invited group will be going to such a place in Sicily working through the mysteries of the winter's tale and I was like oh, this is going to be people who are friends and they all know each other and it's going to be you know you already know I'll send them an email and I explained who I am and by that point I'd already written a few you know I'd designed a few tarot decks I'd written a few essays on esoteric subjects and I think I'd had a book or two out so I was like well this is me this is what I do and this is what I'm researching blah 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 and I got a reply saying, well, that's wonderful. It's full, but we'll put you on the waiting list. And then I got a place. And so I got to go to Sicily and yeah, I just spent, we spent this week working through the play 
in different environments, different locations in Sicily from the beginning with, with Mark Rylance and all these, these other people. There's a couple of actors, but it wasn't an actory thing. It was much more sort of academics and people who were interested in that sort of thing. And Mark would show us through various techniques that he liked to use to break down the play and break down characters. And we'd work our way day by day just through the play. So we didn't like put on the play. It was just like we do scenes and then we break them down and so forth. But we do them like with sort of magical intent, with spiritual intent in various locations. And then eventually we settled into roles. And so by the end, the last few days, I was playing Paulina and Rylance was playing Leontes. And it was just, I mean, it was it was amazing. So working through the play in that way uh, with those people in that place just means that that play and that character has a particularly sacred place in my heart. And um, I should also explain um, there's an extra layer in that as well, because in terms of the mythological symbolism of the Winter's Tale, it's like Shakespeare's version of the myth of Persephone. And within that, the role of Paulina takes on the role of the goddess Hecate, who is guardian and protector and the uh, psychopomp that travels between the worlds. In many versions, it's Mercury, but also Hecate serves that role of traveling between the worlds, just as Paulina does to continue to look after Hermione and Leontes and to hold that authority that is above all other authorities, the kind of authority that can talk back to a king and not have to bear consequences. And so I was taking on the energy of that, of that sort of goddess energy within the Shakespearean role. It was powerful and it was an incredibly sacred, special time. It's one of my most precious memories. So that's why Paulina has to be my favourite character. That's incredible. With Mark Rylance. Oh my God. Yeah. It was so special. It was so special. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah, this character, she is brilliant. She is a law unto herself in many cases. She sees what's right and she fights for it. I mean, I love, yeah, good queen, my lord. Good queen, I say, good queen. Yeah. She's so forceful and she's so able to fight for what she believes in, for the goodness that is Hermione. Yeah, but what does she fight with other than her will and her passion and her just, her, her very self, her energy? She's not a warrior going off into battle, but she's a warrior of the soul. And she's a warrior for truth. And actually, how often do you really find that in Shakespeare? Everybody has their own motivations and reasons for doing what they do, whether it be love, I want to be with this person, or whether it be I want to con conquer this country, or it's to protect my kingdom. Many selfish motivations, even good for good or, or ill, but Paulina is motivated by truth and justice. I mean, another quote of hers that I love, which really encapsulates what you just said, and I believe it's just before she goes to Leontes with Baby Perdita, she says, I, I'll use that tongue I have, if wit flow from it as boldness from my bosom, let it not be doubted, I shall do good. Mm. And she is good, that's it. She's just, I think, the best person in, in Shakespeare, possibly. I mean... Through, I don't know, throw me some other possible examples. Who are contenders for best person? I mean... Now you ask, I really can't think of any. <laughs> right? I mean, she's, uh, 
I'm, I'm sure that uh, like 3 a.m. I'll wake up and go, oh, um, but right now I'm like, that's the person you want on your team. Yeah. Like you want the liner on your side. I mean, listeners, what do you think? Can you think of anyone who can contend with Paulina? I mean, seriously, can you? Is it possible? Because Horatio, right, Horatio is good, but he's pretty much Hamlet's guy. He's not necessarily motivated by great principles or anything. He just obviously loves Hamlet and wants to look after him. He's loyal, he's true, um, but he's very sort of centered around that particular person and his even then he's he's still sort of sometimes uh, talking to Claudius and various things and isn't really able to make the positive difference that he might have liked to have made in the end other than you know he gets to survive but that's about it so um yeah that's my choice and it's a brilliant choice may I add I love the winter's tale I love this play for so many reasons for of course the excellent exit pursued yeah. by a bear oh gosh yes absolutely but if, if people know the play but don't know it very well, they know that. I mean, even people who don't know Shakespeare have probably heard Exit Pursued by Bear and don't know where it's from. Yep, yep, absolutely. It's just one of those little stage directions that taken out of context is absolutely hilarious. And even in context, it is quite funny until you think of the tragedy. It's the director's challenge, isn't it? It's like, OK, how, we do, how do we do the bear? <laughs> yeah, and it's also, yeah, then Paulina's reaction to the loss of her husband. Exactly. So if you do have a comedy bear, then you've got the the actual reality of the tragic loss of of her husband, who's also a very good person. He sacrifices himself, really. When we did it, when we did it on our MFA at the Globe, um, if it was Fergus, do you know Fergus Radigan, who was also involved in the show? Yeah, yeah. So he was the bear. <laughs> oh, amazing. So Fergus, who is like, he's a small guy with this huge bear head on was just it was glorious that's amazing that is a really great way of doing the bear because yeah we have photos somewhere <laughs> it's one of those things you just don't know quite how to stage it but consider the tragedy of paulina losing her husband she's just lost hermione her friend she's and yeah. she's lost her in this very very unjust way and she is already fuming she is furious but the loss of her husband because of leontes's pig-headed blindness mm. but does she seek vengeance she yeah you'd think it would push her over the edge but she doesn't she doesn't yeah, she's completely steadfast it's extraordinary yeah she is a magnificent magnificent character mm. yes oh, this play in general has so many great moments and honestly i could talk about it forever so many great characters autolycus love autolycus brilliant as oh i love it love it love it love it and i also like i like the role of time i did a monologue yes. in the monologue roundup of my first season i love that role it's just it kind of comes out of nowhere but i that please some try all both joy and terror of good and bad that makes an unfolds error it's brilliant yeah it is it encapsulates an experience we all have of time moving past of the cycle of good and bad that we all live through mm. and you see that you see that in all the characters paulina especially i think yes yes absolutely thank you so much for bringing her to the table because yeah brilliant character honestly probably the best i'd say if we're looking at goodness <laughs> 
But the next question that I want to ask you is about a character that you identify with the most, the character that feels most you in Shakespeare's canon. This was, I mean, all of this was just incredibly difficult because, I mean, everybody works in different ways, but I've been lucky enough to play, a lot, I mean, a lot of characters now. So saying that, you know, I've been in 24 of the plays, multiple versions of some of those plays and multi-rolling within quite a number of those. So I've played a lot of characters and I always find what I can identify with within that. It's really about exploring those elements of the human spirit, but also exploring yourself under these different circumstances, like what circumstances would turn you into a Richard III or an Iago, for instance, those dark parts of the psyche, like where does that come from? And you have to kind of love your character. You have to identify with them to do a good job. I'd see it as like a kind of a, of a channeling and it's your duty to the, to the text and to the audience to, to really identify with that and what they're going through in order to communicate that properly. So it's like, it's a little bit like, which is your favorite child, you know, when you say, you know, who do you most identify with? Also, because I've, I ch gone through a lot of changes and transformation in my life and my identity in itself has been quite fluid in, in, in lots of different ways. Uh, who I identify with the most shifts, not only according to who I'm playing at that point, but what's going on in my life. Um, so I, <laughs> so I had, to, so I had to go with, with Hamlet, because Hamlet is everyone in a sense. We are, we are all Hamlet. If it, if that wasn't the case, it would not be the, the legendary, beautiful play that it is people wouldn't you know I think every whenever anybody from any walk of life if they get what's going on in that play you have to be able to put yourself in Hamlet's shoes to get through it really I think or anybody who's ever questioned the people around them their life existence itself finds something in Hamlet and uh, I had this one year 2018 in which I played five different versions of Hamlet to differing degrees. It was all the same year. Most specifically, like, like for the most part, there was two main productions. So one was a full cast production in which I played Hamlet with swords and freaking leather doublets and everything. It was awesome. Um, and then the other is the solo adaptation, Hamlet and Experience, in which I play Hamlet and the audience are the players arriving at Elsinore who then get given roles in Hamlet's life. So they get a little cue script and they, they get certain lines and actions that they have to enact and they, they don't know what anybody else is going to be doing. It all kinds of overlaps and it's, it's magic. It's, it's different each time because of what the audience brings to it and it's just magic. And those were both in 2018, as well as, I think it was the same year, um, there was one in a library, I was doing scenes from Hamlet for the sort of annual celebration of the, uh, uh, Oh, what's it called? The great big epic Irish book that you can't go get through. The, the name's gone. The name of the celebration has gone. So there was that. And there was also, I got to be part of the Globe's special birthday celebrations where they did a, a Hamlet family fun day. And I was hired for that because I'd played Hamlet before. 
Oh, that's right. So the other one was not that same year. The other one was back at Exeter, was where I played Hamlet in, in a strange sort of mashup thing that I put together of Act Five of Hamlet, mashed up with uh, scenes from Twelfth Night to talk about gender. So that's another issue. Um, but yeah, so I got to play Hamlet um, on the Globe stage as one of ten Hamlets for this family fun day, and we each got given one of the major sort of soliloquies or moments from the play, and I got the end. So I got um, to fight Laertes, who was a kid brought up from the audience, we fought with plastic swords. And then I got to die beautifully in the arms of this beautiful Globe actor who was playing Horatio. And um, we did that four times that day, and that was another one of those gorgeous memories. But yeah, I, I had a year just immersed, absolutely immersed in Hamlet. Um, so, so sort of like out of all of the characters I've played, that's the one I've played the most because I've played different versions of him. So I've sort of explored him from different angles because definitely the version that I played, because it's different, I had different directors as well. So, so the version that I played in the full cast production that we did, which was quite had quite a big set and it toured to different spaces and so forth. So the set was variable, but, you know, fancier costumes and projection and swords and all of this stuff had to be a bit bigger and, you know, a little grander. And then Hamlet and Experience is incredibly intimate and he's just wearing joggies and, and, and glasses and being the director Hamlet as well as Hamlet in his story. And then there's a meta device. It's, not, it's very meta. So really, really different versions of Hamlet. So I think, although I've probably played Richard III for the longest, and you know, um, Hamlet is the one that I, it, it's so difficult. But yeah, Hamlet because I've played him the most different ways. It's the one that I've had sort of inhabited the most, and I sort of relate to the most. But as I think a lot of other actors have said who've played Hamlet is you just have to play yourself under those circumstances there's something so raw and vulnerable about that role you have to bring yourself to it so whether it's that i am particularly relating to the character or that i've had to find the parts of myself that i can use to express that character but whatever it is it it sort of resonates on that very intimate vulnerable level yeah no, that makes so much sense because, yes, Hamlet is one of those characters that everyone to some degree understands. Or is frustrated with, or so, but, they, but they find he provokes a reaction in, in people. He does. And his story is kind of that, there's something universally human in there. And, and that's, that's why it lives so long. I mean, Hamlet doesn't bless him, nobody does. Apart from Horatio, but you know that's that's why the play that's why the play has 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 lasted with its um, iconic status as long as it has. And yeah, his lines are quotes. People recognise Hamlet in an ordinary conversation. I mean, everyone knows to be or not to be. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone, at least in this country, yeah. anyone. And, and a less Paul Yorick. You know, if you just do that, you know, the actor pose, the, the imagined skull. I mean, the image of, of, of a figure dressed all in black holding a skull, people instantly recognise that. Yeah, people mm. see Hamlet and they understand him. And, yeah, there are images of Shakespeare where they portray him with Yorick, with the yeah. Yorick skull. Because I've he's got a Christmas the... decoration like that. It's a bit confusing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I think I do too somewhere as well. <laughs> 
but yeah what you were saying that we are all hamlet i because this season is called characters of shakespeare's plays before all of these recordings i read through the chapters of william hazlitt's characters of shakespeare's plays on each play that we discuss so one quote that really stuck out to me was this one in particular hamlet is a name his speeches and sayings but the idle coinage of a poet's brain what then are they not real they are as real as our own thoughts their reality is in the reader's mind it is we who are hamlet there we are that's perfect yeah exactly and we all go through that journey in our life well if we're, if we're lucky enough to reach an age um but even i think from a very young age we all face our mortality and, and what, whatever age that might be for us for some people it's very young for some people it's a little later depending how aware you are or what you have happened to you in your life but it's what is that journey towards acceptance or not that's the journey that hamlet takes if we um get it down to its essential nature is really the journey towards facing mortality and the acceptance of, yeah. of that, and this, that universal truth. This constant tussle with the struggle of life. I mean, he gets to the point, yeah, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Hmm. And yeah, he gets to that point. He's so disillusioned with the life he's living. He's so, he's struggling so much with everything that his father's ghost has put on him, as well as the reality of the situation he's living in. And that's right at the beginning of the play. Yeah. Like his first soliloquy oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a Jew, right at the beginning. So we don't do the sort of the, the thing that stories are supposed to do, or the hero's journey is, is supposed to do, and start from a place of safety. We start right in the midst of everything is terrible and he is not okay through life and is meaningless and pointless and actually the lives of other people are meaningless and pointless and everything to just to this kind of wonderful spiritual acceptance that he achieves by the end that the readiness is all i think there should be a kind of a, a stillness and a a calm in that moment before you get to the fight and everything else and the chaos of the ending but everything happens at once yeah um there's yeah it's extraordinary I think on another level, on a more personal level as well, it's sort of family stuff, not remotely the same um, in terms of the situation. You know, my, my father was not killed by his brother or anything, but I had a lot of family things going on as a teenager that I couldn't talk about, um, that I just wanted to, to rant and rave about and the world would never see things the way that I saw them because nobody knew what I knew. And so that's on a much more personal level, the kind of way in for me that um, that sort of repulsion and revulsion that he feels and that frustration that nobody can see what he sees. I suppose, yeah, I think everyone has their own experience of Hamlet. And when, yeah, in that situation, I think you get as close as you can to his inner psyche. I mean, I have a a slightly similar story mm. it's not it's not in the sense of having things going on with other people it was actually going on with myself in my own brain uh, as a child I had a brain tumor yeah of course and of course that that led me to the 
contemplation of that very mortality that Hamlet talks of. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a different insight on life. It makes you look at things differently. And your Hamlet would be different from my Hamlet, from Olivier's Hamlet, from Tennant's Hamlet, from anybody else's Hamlet. And all of these Hamlets are Hamlet. And isn't that incredible? Yes. That whatever we bring to it, that becomes Hamlet. It becomes Hamlet, yeah. Hamlet is such a versatile character. Mm. He fits so many different stories inside of his complex, overwhelming self. Mm. And you talked about that journey, yeah, where he's going from that place of, honestly, no, nothing and nobody matters. Mm. He has to persuade himself that something does matter in order mm. to motivate himself to kill Claudius. Yeah. He realises that, yeah, my father does matter. What he did to my father does matter. And so I have to I have to force myself to keep living to, you know, avenge avenge my father's death. And then, yeah, the readiness is all. He's reached the point where he can end his life yeah. contentedly, feeling that, yeah, he's done what he needed to live to do. Exactly, exactly. And that's so powerful. Wow. On that note, (laughs) (laughs) last character for today's discussion, which honestly has been incredible so far, which character would you say from Shakespeare's canon do you have, I want to say a love-hate relationship with, you know, one of those problematic favourites? So it's like, well, we've had the the beautifully good and noble and um and truthful Paulina but the character that I have take have carried with me the longest that I love the most from like the inside from having played for so long and who who's done me such such good in my career you know uh, is Richard III and also he'd be so cross with me if I didn't mention him and and you don't want to get on the wrong side of Richard III no 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 I love, I love him. I love him so much. Uh, he's, and yeah, problematic. I mean, sure, he's, you know, he sexually assaults somebody. He, um, depending on how you stage that, but he basically propositions a woman over over, over a corpse. Um, how do you stage that? How do you stage that? <laughs> I'm, I'm so curious because I've never seen a live production of Richard the Third. How do you stage that scene? Well, that's a good question. I think that's going to be a choice for every director. Now, the version that I've been touring with now for on and off, obviously there was a lot of off over the last few years, but I'm now coming back to it this year, um, is a solo adaptation, which uses the audience as the other characters. And um, I remember initially when myself and the director, Colbrun Bjord Sikfistot here were, were um, we're working on on the show we had this two-week residency in in Reykjavik in Iceland we had this open process by which people could come in and we could play with them and and the first version of the script that she presented me with which was like a two-hour amount of material that we were going to cut down to an hour didn't have uh, the dialogue for for the Lady Anne scene in it it was like oh and Richard finds somebody from the audience and says something seductive and then gives them a ring and that's it and I'm like I think I can do this and she was like, okay, how? I'm like, well, just let me just take this and let me just do something with it. So you do lose 
This is very much just our version. You do lose all of Lady Anne's wonderful sort of bouncing, th turning Richard's words back on himself and all of her wonderful wit and this, the, those bits of power that she does have in that. But what's what's really interesting when you take her lines out of that and just use an audience member is you see all of Richard's manipulation because I just, I take them by the hand. I'm saying all of their lines to them. Occasionally I'm repeating something that I've just heard them say. And they're just, they just sort of have to do, I mean, they don't have to, but eventually they'll take the ring and they'll go off. And um, well, you'll have to, you'll have to come and see it. What would I say? But um, it's, an ex, it's an extraordinary scene. And that's rich. That's really Richard trying it on because he's already said to the audience, and this is one of the things that I love about him, is that he flat out just tells the audience, so, I'm bored. We don't have any war at the moment. So what I'm going to do, since everybody's been so awful to me all of my life, I'll be the villain that that they that they say I am because of how I look. I'll be. The, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Watch me. It's going to be great fun. But he, I don't think there's part because he's been so vilified and so abused by his own mother his whole life, as well as other people in his family, and for his physical deformity. There's a part of him that's like, is this going to work? I mean, Lady Anne at one point has a sword to his chest, right? He doesn't know until he comes through that scene whether this is really going to work or not. So he's really trying it on. He's giving it everything he's got, all of his charisma, all of his charm, all of his powers of persuasion. And it's, oh, and when he succeeds, it's like, oh, that is the moment where he's like, Oh, actually, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can, I, this is going to work. Okay. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, this is a test of his abilities. How far can he take his charm? How far, despite the appearance that is condemned by society? Because Lady Anne is literally like, <laughs> to see this, this man that you murdered, he's bleeding right now. It shows that you are the person who did this. The corpse is right there, bleeding. And he somehow manages to get <laughs> to get her to to take a ring from him. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary. Now I've seen it I've seen it done where that becomes quite physical and it's quite sexy, and I, that's valid. It's valid. It doesn't have to be. It can just be words. But that's the wonderful thing about Shakespeare's plays, isn't it? They're so open to interpretation. But having spent so so long with with Richard. And also being mindful of the historical Richard, who was very different by all accounts, I wanted to find the human being, not the villain. Yes. Um, a very, I have a very distinct memory of, I think it must have been around the time that they found Richard's skeleton. Which is interesting, actually, it was around the time when we were doing that first residency at the Globe. We were all on the Globe stage when we heard that news, which was extraordinary. But um, people were ac interviewing academics and all sorts about Shakespeare's Richard on the radio. And some academic, who obviously knew the play, said, oh, of course, Richard doesn't have a conscience. I'm like, that's, if you'll excuse me saying so, some bollocks, because he's constantly referring to his conscience and in the end he's put he's pushing his conscience down he's pushing his conscience down he's doing all of these things because that's what he has to do to get the crown 
which is the only thing that he thinks can fill that gaping hole in his heart. So what he really needs is love, but he doesn't, he's never been loved, so he doesn't understand that. He can't get love. So he's looking for power, which he thinks will force people to love him. It's it's really messed up. Yeah, he talks about, you know, instead of war, uh, the men capering into a lady's chamber, and he says, I, that I'm not shaped for sportive tricks. Yeah, he's, he's given up on, on ever being loved. So he's aiming for the crown. Now, once he gets the crown and it doesn't fill that that gaping hole in his heart, he starts to lose it. And all of those things that he's done and all all of those ghosts come back literally to haunt him. And that and there is his conscience. Oh, coward conscience. How dost thou afflict me? Interesting and parallel between Hamlet and Richard III, they both refer to coward and conscience a lot. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Yes. Oh, coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? They both use that similar language. It's like Richard III is kind of the dark brother of of Hamlet, in a sense. They use, I've noticed because I've played both of them quite a lot, a lot, um, that they have similar speech patterns and their minds work in some similar ways. It's just Richard III does things and leads the action and Hamlet is incapable of yeah. leading the action. And I think it's really interesting um, because, yeah, you pointed out the similarity. And Hamlet talks about conscience making you a coward, mm. whereas Richard talks about conscience being a coward itself. Mm. So these different interpretations, it really says a lot about their characters. The fact that, yeah, yeah, Hamlet talks about, yeah, the conscience turning you into a coward. The fact that your your own emotions can overcome you. Whereas Richard refuses to acknowledge his emotions for what they are. Richard has ex- externalised his conscience. Yeah. Because, because he's, he's, he's blocking it out. He's separated out so many different parts of himself and externalised them that he's become fragmented. And he's, he starts to, there's a, there's a point where he, start, he forgets that he's given an order and he's like, oh, my mind has changed. <laughs> he starts to forget things. He really starts to unravel because he's fragmented himself and split himself and externalised all these different parts of himself. Whereas Hamlet is afraid that he is the coward. Am I a coward? Yeah. He asks that question. And I think any actor worth their thought is playing that and actually asking the audience might wait for an answer. Am I a coward? Uh, Another thing Hazlitt wrote was, Richard is not a man striving to be great, but to be greater than he is. Conscious of his strength of will, his power of intellect, his daring courage, his elevated station, and making use of these advantages to commit unheard of crimes and to shield himself from remorse and infamy. Love that, yeah. And he is very brave. I mean, this was the, this was where I sort of started to build the heroic side of Richard. Yes, we know Richard is a villain, but if you take his final speech to his soldiers and the fact that this is the last king of England who died leading his soldiers to battle, right? He knew he, there's a point where he knows that they've lost um, because Stanley's not bringing his soldiers. That's that's it, right? They're outnumbered. They're not going to make it. But he's marched on. Join bravely, let us to it pell-mell. If not to heaven, then hand in hand to hell. He is not going to back down because they've lost. It's like, no, we're doing this. He's taking the fall and he's leading his soldiers. 
thus my battle will be ordered. You know, you've got a hand in that. Now, if I was going to literally play the devil's advocate and take this to an extreme, yes, he does terrible things um, in order to become king and in order to hold on to, to try to hold on to that power. Um, unconscionable things. What are the other options in terms of what is best for the country? Who would have been a better king at that point for the country? The princes? They're like 13. The oldest one's 13, right? Not, not a great choice to lead the country. But while the princes are still alive, people are going to be behind them because they're the rightful heirs. So they're going to want them to be to be king. He was just the custodian for a while. Um, would Clarence have been a good king? Bit wet behind the ears, not very bright. Simple playing Clarence, you know, not a good choice. Um, my, my, my arguments on behalf of Richard there, incredibly problematic arguments on behalf of Richard there is that he does what he does, not only for himself, but he's convinced himself, just as I had to convince myself as Richard that this is why he's doing it, that what he's doing is for the good of his country, which is, um, we do this thing in the solo one where it gets to the point where Richard is saying, I have to do this, this and this and this. With La It's actually using Lady Anne as his, his confessor, um, whereas maybe perhaps he'll be using the audience or other characters generally. But there's a <laughs> explaining to Lady Anne that she has to die because he has to be married to his brother's daughter, Elizabeth's daughter, who is also called Elizabeth, because there just weren't enough names. I don't know, there was a name shortage. Um, or else his kingdom stands on brittle glass. That's his justification. I must be married to my brother's daughter or else my kingdom stands on brittle glass. Murder her brothers and then marry her. Uncertain way of gain. But I'm in so far in blood that sin will pluck on sin. Love him. I love him. Sin will pluck on sin. And then later on he says, all several sins, all used in each degree, thronged to the bar, crying all guilty guilty yeah that's the point where he goes i am a villain and he real everything that he's done falls on his head he's looking the ghosts of the people that he's murdered in the eyes and going yeah you're right i am a villain i've done all of these yeah. terrible things how can you think that he doesn't have a conscience when you read that i just i wonder i do wonder if because when I, i've seen various versions of it in action on stage you've also got normally Richmond's tent and the ghosts appearing to Richmond and blessing him and then you've got the ghosts appearing to to Richard and cursing him where the people really spend enough time because they want to get to the battle whether they spend enough time with that moment in Richard's tent and I think that that moment is so crucial to show Richard's humanity and vulnerability and his conscience I think that is the most crucial point for his character there to really to really get the full juice of of that you know and i i have seen it skirted over and cut down in fact the richard the third film the famous olivier one it's practically not there at all because they want to paint you the picture of richard as the iconic villain i mean i can't i can't i don't know their reasoning but i i would miss it yeah. yeah, Richard talks about yeah, becoming the villain, which is the only role society 
is condemning him to play. It's the only role that he seems to be able to fulfill, according to the people around him. But then in this soliloquy, he realizes that he really has become that villain. And that is a jarring readjustment of his self-view. As you see, is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Then fly. What from myself? Mm. Great reason why. I am a villain. Yeah. All of this, he's talking in contradictions. And he's realizing that this isn't some third person doing this. This is me. Which takes you right back to the opening speech where he says, I am determined to become a villain, right? This will be fun. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. On the journey to the point of that realization of the truth of what he's become. It's heartbreaking. It's beautifully juicy. He talks of love as sportive tricks at the beginning. And then he says, there is no creature loves me. And it's so simple, but so... So tragic. Yeah. There is no creature loves me, and if I die, no one will pity yeah, no me. No soul shall pity me. Why should they, since I myself find in myself no pity to myself? <sighs> yeah, he's incredibly self-cognizant. Mm. He sees himself for what he is. And that, honestly, that is better than a lot of Shakespeare characters. <gasps> yeah. And again, I go, I go back to Hamlet again. I don't think any other character addresses the audience as much as these two characters for self-reflection and using the audience as the different parts of of themselves. Um, there's there's a lot to to explore there, the parallels between the two of them and how they relate to audience and question an audience and in Richard's case, manipulate an audience and make them um, make them part of unanswerable to in a sense because he's had them if, if you're doing a good job you've got them laughing away with you as you're plotting your villainous plots and then one by one the audience starts to slowly realize the reality of the situation yeah. and they're complicit in it initially yeah you kind of have fun with richard while he's enjoying his role as a villain we struggle to see the heinous nature of what he's doing but when he starts to realize it we start to understand and we are forced to watch. He externalizes his conscience to the audience because that's what a soliloquy is. You know, it's talking to the audience. It's bouncing ideas off of this reactive, reflective space full of different minds and ideas. And in a way, we become those several sins that cry guilty, guilty, as we begin to understand he is a downright villain at this point. But he's more than that. He's not two-dimensional in the way, say, Don John is. I'm sorry, there's... He's one of those villains, John. John. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's one of those cartoonish caricatures almost. But Richard, honestly, I think you say Richard the Third, and this complex idea of villainy immediately comes to mind. And it's hard to even explain in words, but it's there. Yeah. I mean, if you know the character, yes. I think a lot of people come to the show and are surprised at the end when they're like, oh, God, I really felt sorry for you by the end. I'm like, job done. Because yeah. they're, they're surprised that they felt sympathy for Richard by the end, but I think you should, because you have to face your own darkness and your own reality and the fact that if you were put under those circumstances and treated the way that he was, maybe maybe you wouldn't take that route, but you can start to see why he might. Yeah. So it's, I, I, he, I think he's ex- an extraordinary creation. And I will, yeah, so that's my problematic favourite. <laughs> 
And it's a brilliant choice. It's such a good choice. I think he's one of those, he's kind of the pinnacle, I'd say, or many people view him as like a pinnacle of Shakespeare's creativity of the characters he created. Well, that's it. And again, all, all, all people might choose Hamlet, but these two are up there. These two. And Leah. Leah. Oh, and Leah, yeah. Oh, Leah. But that is another discussion. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily, for talking about these three genius characters with me because, yeah, they all bring so much to the table. It still astounds me that Shakespeare managed to encapsulate so many different facets of the human experience in his plays. Goodness, badness, mm. indecision, confusion. Yeah, I think he must have been one of those people who sat and observed. Yes. And listened a lot. Oh, definitely. Because these characters really are extraordinary. And his, his perspective on, on human beings in various different circumstances and, and the meta way in which they can reflect upon their circumstances is really, really something special. Yeah, it's magical. So how about we tell the listeners where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing in the next few weeks so they can know where to find you after this episode? So <laughs> in terms of everything that we've been talking about, I'm very excited to be reviving a Richard III One Person show this year. Um, and I'm going to need to look in here for dates. So it's going to the Broccoli Jack Studio Theatre in London from June the 6th to the 10th. And then at the end of June, to the beginning of July, just for three nights and a matinee, I'll be at Shakespeare North with Richard III. So that's from the 29th to the 1st of July. But if you... Um, Keep an eye on my, oh, I know what else I need to talk about, but if you keep an eye on my website, which is emilycarding.com, whatever I'm doing next over the next few months will always be there. Um, there's also Quintessence, um, which is going to be in the southwest, at least for now, in May, in the mornings. So we're doing that, I'm doing one show in the mornings and I'm doing a new show called Shadowless, written by the director Sue Luciani in the evenings. And that's from, I think the performances are from May the 10th through to the 13th at the Plough Arts Centre, which is in North Devon. And there's lots of other things coming up as well, but just some things I, I haven't announced yet and other things which I've temporarily forgotten. So uh, because there's so many things, have a look at my website, emilycarding.com, and it will all be there. Can't wait. Oh, Emily, thank you again. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It's been a real joy talking with you. It really has. Hope you all enjoyed, listeners. And I will see you shortly for The Teenager's Take. Welcome to The Teenager's Take. Emily's character choices offered us so much food for thought in that conversation that it's simply impossible to do justice to any of the three she picked. But I think we had a pretty good stab at it. If you had to put them on a spectrum, you might put Paulina on the angelic end of it, with Hamlet in the morally grey middle and Richard III in the throes of evil. But there's much more to it. Just as Richard has a conscience and Hamlet his noble and whiny moments, well, actually I don't think I can find anything to say about Paulina, she's simply too good for all of us. Her strength in standing up for Hermione, 
Her courageous defense of baby Perdita, along with her impassioned and blatant denunciation of her monarch once Hermione dies, in inverted commas, or not, who knows? All of these things depict her as one of Shakespeare's best, if not the best character indeed, in the simplest sense of the term, in the sense of pure-hearted goodness. She tells us that vengeance for the Queen's death is not dropped down yet, but never exacts it. By highlighting all of the follies Leontes has committed, betraying his friend, feeling jealousies too weak for boys, too green and idle for girls of nine, slightly emasculating there and a very good point, intending to poison Camillo's honour to make him kill Polixenes, the banishment of his child. In the stark shock of Hermione's death, she tears away all the defence that his position as king offered him from everyone else. She reduces him to the man he is, shifting from liege to tyrant, and the respectful you to the intensely personal thou. What a woman. What a character. Hamlet. Well, I don't think I have anything new to say on this character. So much has been said and thought and written and suggested and hinted at and analysed that I have but a few summary comments to make. Samuel Johnson wrote that Hamlet was an instrument rather than an agent in his play, but Hamlet himself refutes this, saying, call me what instrument you will, though you can fret me, you cannot play me. While we often talk about Hamlet as a play in which the main character procrastinates, in this case killing on moral grounds until the end, and it was a view I held myself till I started this podcast, that he's actually masterful in directing his piece. From the play within a play, to his talk with his mother, to the killing of Polonius, to the final duel with Laertes. A quick note on his madness. Last year, when I watched the inimitable Michelle Terry as Cordelia and the Fool in King Lear, I was struck by the resemblance between Terry's Fool and her previous performance of Hamlet. And it got me thinking. By intimating that he is mad and has a looser grip on himself that he does, Hamlet creates an opportunity for himself to play a fool-like role within his play, saying things that he probably would not be able to were he believed in possession of his wits. Polonius notes how pregnant his replies are with a happiness that often madness hits on, which reason and sanity could not so prosperously be delivered on. More shall be said on fools next week so keep this little idea in mind. Harold Bloom wrote that Richard is his play, and that no other role matters much. His character allows for such thorough interpretation that this statement is alternately true and not true. Emily's own fantastic one-person show of Richard III is proof that he is powerful in and of himself, but as they mentioned, it's from bouncing off of the people around him that Richard thrives. From his interaction with Lady Anne to his deception of his brothers and the people who follow him, Richard's attractively evil character is formed by the squeezing and suppressing of societal pressures upon him. The world he lives in sees him as deformed inside due to his appearance. So he decides to fulfill the only function he thinks he can. In terms of externalising his conscience, a great point of Emily's, it almost made me think of another Richard, Richard II, who talked about peopling his internal world with his thoughts, separating parts of himself to fill his environment. 
In a similar way, Richard uses the audience to satisfy his intense need for someone to talk to, as there's no one he feels he can truly, truly trust in the play. Primarily because he's hiding something from, well, everyone. When Richard is left alone after the spirits of those he has murdered have left him, he is terrified of being himself, of the life and skin he inhabits, of who he is, and it's a visceral experience. That externalising of conscience, to some extent, has taken place within the audience. When we couldn't help but like Richard, when we appreciated him in the height of his villainy, as he smiled and exerted his wicked strength, he could continue. We may no longer do this when the natural order is subverted so far as to have the spirits of the next world wandering the earth as ghosts. And there's nothing left to smile about. Richard's reputation was so far influenced by Shakespeare that, I mean, there was even a society set up to defend him from this wicked reputation that was created. But his evil is a delicious blend of an infinite range of thoughts and feelings, really. Every Richard brings something new to the table, so I highly recommend you go check out Emily's show. This is proving to be a very exciting season so far, and I can't wait to introduce the rest of our guests to you all in the coming weeks. For now, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do check us out on social media, on Instagram and Twitter in the meantime, and see you next week.